Welcome back, listeners. On this episode, I spoke to K.K. Barrett about his decades-long career as a production designer. Barrett is an Oscar nominee for his work on Her and a BAFTA nominee for his work on Marie Antoinette. He is also a five-time ADG nominee and one-time winner for Her. I first just wanted to get started by asking you, um, what first drew you to film and design? Well, I was uh, I was an artist in university. I was a painter and a sculptor. And so design was inherent. And then I never thought I'd have a career in film. That was kind of accidental. But, uh, and I was playing music and and music led me into film. And I knew film very well. I was a big fan of it. And I had uh, investigated quite a bit about, you know, film design and was curious about it and and knew a lot of the major players and the, and the films of uh, there were touchstones. But I didn't know the name. I didn't know that production design was a job. I didn't know any of that kind of stuff. And I just fell into it. And it was a very small independent film. And and I offered to design the sets and they said, sure. You know, it just meant mm-hmm. that I had to build them too. Yeah. I had to do everything. And was that cheerleader camp? No, that was population one. Ah, that got was it. In 1980. Mm. And then I thought, okay, I did that once. That'll be, that's fine. Um, you know, I probably never do this again. I just didn't think the opportunity would come back. And then when you can do things cheaply, the opportunity is always there. There's somebody that, you know, says like, I heard you solve their problem. Can you solve mine? Yeah. And so and- that's, that's when I did that, that run of, uh, three little low budget films, mm. blood diner and cheerleader camp and uh, crack house. I love that. <laughs> uh, and so, I mean, what, what sort of, what was the accidental way of falling into into film that you were sort of specifying at earlier? I was uh, I was a musician in a band, and somebody wanted to make short films with us, and uh, they found some funding, and I built a studio for them. I was also a carpenter during my summers when I was in school, so I had that skill, and so uh, I built a studio and then the recording studio and kind of a soundstage. And then right after that, we phased into making these little short films. And this is musical films. Um, This is before MTV. And so I I started doing that and then then that expanded into a bigger film project. It just kept Mm -hmm. expanding and expanding. And then MTV happened a couple years later and I already had like a number of short projects to show so it was natural that I could fall into that as well and then those directors started becoming film directors mm. and so it yeah. was a, a, a natural a graduation from from you know trial and error to bigger trial and error to bigger trial and error mm. and so I mean I can I can tell I mean the scrappiness is definitely something that gets you from sort of music videos to your first films but 
I'm curious what else in the in the music videos and and I mean just the musical numbers that you were working on. I mean, what were you able to take away from from those to to get to those um to get to those larger films in terms of takeaways that you were able to just gather along the way? Well, I uh the thing about those was you could be very fantastic, you could be surreal, you didn't need to uh, be be reality based. And so it it was a great way to show your imagination. Mm. And often somebody's looking for imagination rather than just replication. Um, and so that was, a, especially if you weren't as experienced, that was a great foot in the door. You could see that <clears throat> I had different takes on things. And uh, that got me into the other films. But then after I did the three low-budget films, I stopped doing films for 10 years because I realized that they were so scrappy that I wasn't going to get an opportunity to do the kind of quality film that I wanted to do. And then I went, uh, and I needed to learn more. And so I spent 10 years doing uh, bigger budget music videos and commercials. It was actually the commercials uh, that was the springboard into film because a lot of the serious directors came from commercials where the projects were funded and they looked slicker. There, there was more finish need for it, um, the end result. And so it was a little bit something that, that was quality to show rather than just the low-budget horror movies. You know, mm. I don't know how people do it now. It must be really hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but talk to me about imagination because, I mean, that, that seems like such a um, through line through so many of your films that you've worked on um, specifically, I mean, with Spike and um, with Sofia Coppola. And I'm just, I'm curious where you, um, where the imagination sort of starts churning in your, in your brain. Uh, it, it comes from questions. It comes from questioning everything. Um, when I look at a script and it, Will describe something. I don't take that literal. I, I immediately think, what else could that be? And uh, and then go back to the the writer. Luckily, see, both of those people were writer-directors. Or in, mm -hmm. in Spike's case, early on, we had Charlie Kaufman as a writer, and he was very involved. Um, and so I was always questioning, and that made them rethink about it. Because oftentimes, when you're writing, you write down a very brief description of, of the setting, but you, you're really trying to think of the plot and the characters and you won't go back and dig into that until later. And I was the person that would make them go back and dig into that later. Uh, every director is different. Some people have a, a perfect visual idea of what it should be and other people are more open to uh, investigating what, it, what the possibilities are and the alternatives are. Mm. Uh, also, both of those directors that you mentioned, Spike and Sophia, were both self-taught directors even though Sophia had been around her father she uh I don't think she went to film school she studied photo <clears throat> photography but uh they both wanted to make films that didn't look like other films and they they understood the value of uh a personal take on things mm -hmm. and uh so that was very much in line with 
the way I came into film, um, not coming up through a studio system and, you know, having to work my way. My first job was as a production designer mm. and, and a prop master and a painter and a builder and all those, all those things. But, but I, was, I was still responsible for it all and in charge of it all. And so um, they were just open. They, they liked the idea that you could, if it was a good idea and it was a fresh idea, then that was a better alternative than doing something that we'd seen before. And then that, because, because of those, those experiences, that became something I held on to on every film I did, even if it was a, a, a studio movie or a, or a, a, a straighter movie mm. that wasn't on the surface and more uh, quirky or imagination-based. Mm. So talk to me about um, one, of me, one of my favorite films, uh, Marie Antoinette. And I'm just curious, what question did you have, or I mean questions, but maybe one question in particular that you had when um, approaching um, this film in its different light? Um, and, and it's, I mean, this question, I love the question-based theory of you take the script and I mean, what was one of the main questions that you took away um, from the script and then went to um, your counterparts to, to sort of solve for something or to get clarity? Well, it, I'd never done a, a period piece. I'd never done something with so much visual, you know, documentation of what it actually was. Um, but that visual documentation was not photographic. There was paintings and it was, it was drawings and, and things like that that existed from the time. But even those were somewhat interpreted uh, the paintings were usually only done for the for the high court and they were used to make them look grand and sophia didn't want them want them to be old and stuffy she wanted everything to be young and uh a lighter colors and so she had a very good visual sense of paralleling the contemporary world with the world of marie antoinette at the age that she was at that time and she didn't want uh, deep, dark colors, which were very familiar in the paintings. She wanted pastel colors and, and a youthful, you know, life to the film. Uh, mm. Obvious with the music choice, you know? Yeah. I mean, at one point, Sophia wanted to have the film starting with Marie Antoinette in a bubble bath and blowing a bubblegum bubble. Mm. So you knew that this was a bit of a pop version of, not literally from the sound, but you know, it's like, it was, it, it's like everybody says, oh, the, the Converse tennis shoes, was that a mistake? No, that was just one hint that this was not, if you didn't get it from the soundtrack, that this was not your straight biopic. Hmm. Um, at the same time, I had to research what was correct and know, what things looked like and should be before we'd bend them into our choice of maybe being slightly different. Mm. And so there were a thousand questions that we would ask each other, you know, what do we think? <laughs> and, it, and it came down to uh, a touchstone that me and Spike also operated on in her, which was, let's just do what we like. Mm. You know, we trust our tastes. Um, we have opinions about things. Let's just do what we like rather than what we what we other people think we should do or expect. Mm. 
And I mean, speaking of her, I mean, was that sort of a, I mean, having known Spike for, I mean, I, at least many decades at that point, I mean, was it sort of a blank canvas from the, from the start in terms of this futuristic world that, that we get to experience and that we get to live in? And um, what, what did that sort of framework look like at the time? It was a very blank canvas. We were very excited about getting to design the future. And then we realized slowly that it was not the future. Mm. That it was, it was just an alternate version of now, or it was uh, a six month ahead future. And so, um, you know, beat by beat, we would say, well, what could this be? What, what is this? What is this? So many things in the film exist on our modern world, but just not all in Los Angeles like the high-speed train and things like that. You know, we just did that out of out of convenience and also out of wishing that we had it. Um, but, you know, beat by beat, we would think, oh, everybody else is going to expect us to make this technologically advanced. Mm. That's really, and then you peel back the script and you go, that's really not what the script is about. The script is about relationships and how people connect. And so we slowly got to the basic concept that we wanted to connect through the devices as clean as possible without any technological interference. So we didn't want to show technological gadgets and uh, products and things like that. We wanted to make it very simple. And if we did show it, we wanted to make it something that wasn't covetable. It wasn't somebody looking at it and saying like, oh, I want that, you know, like, like his device that he carries around, mm. um, which was a big breakthrough. It, it was a, it was a moment of honesty where we just felt like this is really correct. And, and you have to kind of second think an, an audience and, and not give them what they want, but help them learn as they go, as they're discovering these different things and how they're used within the film. Mm. It makes them pay attention. It makes them involved. It makes them curious. And mm. then they're participating in the film, which is very important. Mm. And strange question for you, but does technology scare you? Not at all. Not at all? Not at all. It's a great tool. Mm. It's just, it's so interesting to me. I mean, just with her and the way, I mean, our society is shifting and... I mean, not in that direction, but I mean, the ways that the film sort of, um, like you said, are an, um, but also, I don't know, a slight look into the future. I just, I think, me... <laughs> I think, I think history has proven that people are much more scary than technology. Mm, very true. I mean, and what, and what they do with technology and how they manipulate it and how they uh, use it to misrepresent themselves or the truth hmm. uh, so technology is just a tool you know you just it uh it needs an idea behind it to be applied and uh it's it's helped us in so many different ways we couldn't be talking face to face like this without it you know hmm. uh, yeah, very true. even though we got very bored of that during during covid but <laughs> I, I, I hungered for just you know like erasing technology and just meeting people in person. Mm. No, 100%. And I, I, that's such an, I mean, such an interesting assessment. Um, 
I mean, even, there... even the creative fear of AI, I think uh, it still has to be, there has to be parameters put into it for you to get the result. Like you can put one and one in and it'll maybe give you a three and a four rather than the two that you've already thought of, which sparks you into thinking about some other possibility that you could uh, arrive at as, as the result of your creative dilemma. And so it, it's, it could be a good spark. Mm. I wouldn't trust it with the final end result because it's always pretty cheesy mm. and, or it, or it looks very much like it's source materials. Mm. No, very fair. Um, but in terms of designing around particular films is, and I, I like how you pivoted the, the answer of that question to be, or answer that question. And, um, I mean, the, the characters are the ones that can get the people who harness this technology are the ones who are sort of can control us. And I'm curious if there is a particular instance, I mean, or a favorite instance out of your filmography that the, the character has really dictated the, the design of the production. Uh, I think in each case they've, they've dictated the design of the production. I try to, I try to feel like I am trying to get inside of the mind or embedded in the mind of the character and try to see through their eyes. Like, uh, as we go through our daily, you know, life, we look at things and certain things grab our attention and other things we ignore. And that's because, uh, it's our character trait to be curious about certain things and accepting of others as banal or just as is. And so that's what I try to do in film is go with the character and show the things that they would be focused on and affect them in their time in the story. Mm. There may be other things in the world that they don't, uh, that they are interested in, but maybe it doesn't need to be shown in this story because this story doesn't include that object or that background. Mm. That's a very convoluted way of answering your question, but- uh, No, I love it. I, I, I love that answer. Um, so and it's, I, it's, it's, a, it's a long investigation of, of finding out what's truthful that should be shown and what's interesting that should be shown. Mm. But you don't need to show something that has no, no bearing on the story. Mm. Um, even if it's historically accurate, it may not really, it may just be a distraction to the, uh, the path of the character. Mm. And is there a, a film in your career that, I mean, you've most sort of related to in terms of when you're creating this world that you're sort of absorbing while, so, while you're watching it yourself? I mean, that you sort of become entranced and think, oh, this is me. Or is that this, is that with all of your films that you feel, feel that way that you're, it's a, a piece of you in a sense, or. Um, I think it, I, I, I have to think of, the background or the world that they live in as a, as a piece of me, as it is, as it is a piece of them. I think that um, Charlotte in Lost in Translation is the closest to the investigation you do when you're making a film because she was discovering a new world 
as a curious person. Mm. And so she's tr she's wandering around alone and marveling at different things that grab her attention and realizing how different they are from the world that she normally lives in. And this is sparking her imagination. And she's just absorbing it. She's not really doing anything with it. But we get to see, <clears throat> sorry, we get to see her as she witnesses these things. And I really felt like that's what I do when I'm looking at locations or traveling around and trying to piece uh, what belongs in a film uh, in, in one palette, you know, rather than extraneous palettes. Because you're always trying to, you've got too many decisions to make and you're trying to narrow them down into a focus that will apply to the story and be impactful. And so you're constantly looking, you're constantly absorbing, rejecting, editing. Um, and I think that's a bit what she was doing. Mm. There's also the emotional side where you're feeling lonely, you know. Mm. It's also a very lonely job at the beginning before you get your team. <laughs> that's true. Um, it's, just, it's just you and the director really bouncing things off each other, trying mm -hmm. to figure out uh, what pieces of the puzzle belong. Yeah, and accepting and rejecting and editing. I yeah, love that. Yeah, yeah. Love that. Um, and then talk to me about your involvement in the in the collective and and your and your work that's um, going to be coming up in the um, <clears throat> international production design week. It's, it's so long overdue. I think that not really very many people in the business that we engage in, uh, participate in, understand what we do. It's, it's bizarre. Sometimes writers, I mean, they, they, they appreciate when it's a loud effort in film and you notice it and it hits you in the face. But I don't know if they appreciate the subtle choices that we make sometimes. Um, and so... The Production Design Collective, it was amazing when everybody got together uh, through these events and that Inbo and Kalina started putting together and realized that we all have these same problems, you know? It is a very lonely path in the beginning. And so we all looked at each other and like, oh my God, we all do this different ways, but with the same goal and uh, very parallel systems, you know? Because we all work for different directors and each director has their own sense of, uh, of, of, of visual worth or not, visual importance or not. Um, and then we, we bounce through different genres. But the path is always the same, still trying to figure out uh, what belongs, what doesn't belong, what's exciting, uh, what's, what's emotional. And... Uh, to be able to put us together and and share those experiences was amazing. Mm. And I mean, final question for you. I mean, what excites you about the future, whether it whether it's about the collective, the um the week, or <clears throat> I mean, just the the state of production design um in the future? Everything excites me about it. I think that uh I'm you know, a lot of talk is about AI, which we we touched on a minute ago, and it being a, a potential tool. But I think it's going to require all of us to be much more original. Mm. You know, what would AI not think of? Mm. What would AI think is wrong? 
those are the golden gems that we get to, you know, own ourselves. Uh, <clears throat> because that's a, that's a human uh, a trait, you know, to be able to be, to think of things as ironic or absurd or surreal. And I don't think, it, they're not interpreted literally. You can't mm -hmm. input that and get the answer back. And so I think it'll accelerate the fact that we all will be making much more original films. Mm. I, I love hope. that. I hope. I love that answer. I, I and I hope so too. Um, yeah. I, but, but that's such a beautiful answer. Um, so I'm not, so I'm not worried. I'm not intimidated by it at all. I'm not worried about it at all. It'll help us get there. In fact, you know, it'll show what the default simple solution could be. And we can go like, I can beat that. Absolutely love that. Um, but KK, I want to thank you so much. Um, Absolutely. This has just been such a pleasure and such beautiful insight into your work and into, into your headspace for, for just a few <laughs> minutes because it's, it's marvelous just to hear these stories and to, to hear where it goes. Um, and uh, I'm definitely going to take so many different things that you said to, especially what you just said about um, just the, the state of where we go next in terms of um, just being more original and what, what can I do as a, as a person that AI or someone else in the world can't do to make it original. So um, I really appreciate the, the words you've spoken this morning. Thank you for tuning into this episode. This podcast was hosted and produced by yours truly, Jackson Vickery, but a very special thank you to Sterling Gavinsky for the theme music and to Carly Haney for the artwork. We will see you next time.